It's 4.01, so we're going to get started, and uh, thanks for coming, but you, you do realize that by attending this, you've kept me from going to have some me time, so that's on you. You guys have to be responsible for that. Um, my thought is we would just do kind of a Q&A. I want to say before we start that my answers to these questions will be my opinions, right? So these are my, my perceptions, my experience, my opinion, and you should treat them like that. I'm a human being. I've, I get some things right, I get some things wrong, just like every human being you've ever met, and just because something's my opinion doesn't necessarily mean it's correct, it just is my opinion, and, and that doesn't mean that it isn't correct, it just means you kind of got to take everything with a measure of reasonableness when you're dealing with other human beings, because like I said yesterday, while we believe that the Bible is infallible, we don't believe that human interpretation is infallible, so sometimes... You're making your best conclusions, and you're, you're making your best sort of reasonable responses, but, um, but you could be wrong. So I, I tend to take a posture with just about everything, except for like real essential things, a posture of saying like, here's what I think, and I could be wrong. Um, there are some essential things where I don't say that, and I'll tell you when we, when we hit some of those, but also know this. Um, my opinions may not necessarily reflect the, the opinions of Hume Lake or the opinions of your particular church. Uh, my opinions... Yeah, so, so, you know, as I'm giving you answers to questions, just remember you're hearing from one person and his perspective and treat it like that. So is that helpful? Okay. So uh, we didn't, like, write anything down. We haven't done any of that. I'm, I'm happy to just sort of take questions from you guys. Like, if you, if you know already a thing you want to talk about, then you can hit me with that, and we'll get started. Yeah, Michael. Why did you choose to come to Uh To speak, you mean? Well... So I recognized in 1997, in 97 I was a singer in a Christian band, actually I was leading worship at Hume Lake, I was kind of doing what the band does, and in 97 I had uh, someone who kind of spoke into my life in a prophetic way, not, not in like, you know, not to be weird about it, but I had somebody who kind of spoke into my life and said, you have a teaching gift and a preaching gift and you should be using that, and I had not, I had not recognized that teaching gift in my own life, so somebody recognized something God had made in me that I myself didn't even see. And this person then encouraged me to start using that teaching gift, so I did. I started teaching. I actually started teaching for camps at Hume Lake in 1998, before most of you, probably almost all of you except the leaders, were born. Um, I taught my first camp at Hume in 1998, and then I've been using my teaching gift since. And so um, I'm a pastor at a church, but I also have margin in my life, uh, as permitted by the elders, to do some outside teaching. And uh, so the reason I'm here this week is because I believe that it's important to use your gifts and because Hume invited me. So that, that's the bottom line for me. So, and I, I love Hume. And interestingly, I, I have a sentimental attachment to Ponderosa Chapel because that is the first place where I ever started teaching the Bible. So when I stand on that stage, I teach students, there is a sentimental thing for me. of kind of It's almost like home field advantage. It's like when the Dodgers play at Dodger Stadium. It's kind of cooler than when they play anyplace else. That's, that room feels a little bit like Dodger Stadium to me, so... Not that I'm the Dodgers, but you know what I'm saying. Next question, yes. As a pastor, why do you build churches? That's a great question. Well, I, I think there's, there's two answers to that. So what she asked is, as a pastor, how do you deal with church leadership when they sin? I think the first thing to recognize is that everybody in leadership and otherwise is going to sin and does sin. So I come into it with a humble solidarity with my fellow man. That includes everybody in this room, but everybody in leadership at the church knowing that they're all broken and they're all busted, and so am I. And sooner or later, those mistakes are going to be obvious. I'd rather encourage an environment where people can be open about their flaws. Occasionally, you have criminal offenses. You know, you have sin where it's like people have been abused or people have been taken advantage of or people have stolen money or whatever. And I think the Bible gives us a pretty decent 
framework for approaching that kind of sin. So typically, there's a one-on-one conversation. You have a conversation with one-on-one with somebody to say, we've discovered this thing, or there's an accusation that's been made. And then you, so you approach them. If they respond to that and they're, and they're open to it, then you find resolution and reconciliation. Sometimes that means people got to go to jail, or sometimes that means people have to lose their jobs, or people have to confess in a public way, um, depending on the, the nature of the thing. If you confront somebody and they're unresponsive or they're in denial of that, then you, then you are meant to approach them in a group of two. So two people would go, and that would typically be myself and one of the elders. If they're still unresponsive, uh, th- then you approach them in a broader group. And you, you can get to the place where in church discipline, where you remove that person from fellowship, which essentially just says like, hey, we, we really want you to, to repent of the thing you're doing. And as soon as you can just own that you've made the mistake, then we want you to be in fellowship with us. But if you can't own that, then you have to be sort of outside for a little while. I'm, I'm really slow to do that sort of thing because everybody's broken. But the other thing I was going to say when it comes to failure and leadership is I think we want to be really transparent with people. So we don't do cover-ups. We don't do secret meetings. We don't do like behind the curtain kind of conversations when there's, when there's, stuff that's busted, and that's happened in the history of our church over time, some of which before I got there, um, we tend to just try to be really open-handed with that and kind of put it out in front of people so it doesn't feel like we're sneaking around or trying to cover things up. Um, I also feel like it's really, really important, and this, this hasn't happened much since I've been at this church in the last five years, but I think it's really, really important to make sure you're paying attention to people who potentially have been victimized or have been hurt and abused. Because a lot of times there, is, there has been a history, unfortunately, in the church of minimizing victims and not maybe giving enough credence to the pain that people have felt. And I think it's really important to be able to listen to both sides of the story and try and be as discerning as possible when handling the brokenness that's in people. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Can I ask you a question? Of course. Well, man, you know, the Bible is really clear that one of Satan's favorite things to do, it's funny, when people think about Satan, they typically think like glowing red eyes and pointy teeth and whatever. That's not really how the Bible talks about the devil at all. The Bible talks about the devil not being scary at all, but actually being really focused on division, right? The the primary tool of the devil is to try and divide the body of Christ and, and to get us at each other's throats. So when we have someone who's made a mistake or who has to leave ministry or has to go to jail or whatever... Um, we, we tend to, like I said, be very open about that, but the aftermath of it has to do with just walking alongside with people and caring well for them. We have peer counseling at our church, um, which is like a robust program, but sometimes that we can even be out of our depth a little bit with peer counseling, so sometimes we've had to send people to professional therapy, professional rehabilitation, those kinds of things. We just walk alongside the body and try and figure out what is needed to build restoration and healing and redemption and most of the time that centers around just being honest and trying to like, just trying to really pay attention to what's actually going on in the hearts of people as opposed to presuming we know what people need or whatever. The reality is that in a church, communication is very complex and sometimes you can say things very clearly to people and they hear something different or they have a pre- preconceived idea. So I, I will be honest with you, I don't know that I'm, I haven't solved the in the five years I've been in the role I'm in, I, I don't know that I have figured out how to communicate in a way that everyone will receive in peace. Uh, like it feels complex and difficult. But I will also say that like the last three years, 
it's harder to communicate anything to anybody because people are so divided and they're anxious and fearful and we've all been through this roller coaster of life. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of division that's just kind of sitting on the surface of people. So it gets, it's, it's complex and complicated. The last thing I'll say is I don't do anything in our church uh, by myself. So even as a senior leader at a church, I do everything in collaboration. I do everything in plurality. I do things alongside the elders. I do things with the senior leadership team. But I'm not doing any Lone Ranger work. I mean, the, even my messages on Sunday are prepared in collaboration, um, and they're revised in collaboration. So I'm, I, one of the ways I check my own biases is by working with other people who are wise and discerning and who can call me into account too in case I'm missing things, you know? So that's one of the ways I'm trying to accomplish that also. It's good questions. Yeah, you bet. What else? Yes? It's good. She says, uh, how do you deal with... I just said she. I assumed that was your pronoun and I'm... Yes, so I'm good. Sorry, I'm, I'm in a stage in my life too where I'm trying to think about how quickly I go to pronouns without thinking about it. But you just said to me, how do I deal with misinterpretation, right? How do I deal with misinterpretation um, by other pastors or church leaders of the Bible? I, I, try and, I try and approach that with grace because again, everybody's broken and everybody's taking their best guess and we're all trying to add things up as best we can. And so some of the time, what seems like misinterpretation to me might not be mis- I might be the one who's misinterpreting it, right? So I try and do everything with grace. I try and do everything in conversation. Um, there have been moments at our church where like someone will teach something that I feel like isn't necessarily theologically sound. And my approach to that is to come mus- alongside that person afterwards and go, hey, you said this, but I'm not sure that I think that's true of the character of God. Or I'm not sure that I think that is what Jesus was trying to say here. Or I'm not sure that interpretation is correct. I let them defend where they're at, and I, then I think about it, because maybe they're right and I'm wrong. So I always hold it with the, with the ability to reshape my thinking, um, but, but if I find that somebody has just sort of fallen into something that feels false or that's heretical, maybe a classic heresy or something that, that maybe our church just, just doesn't agree with or whatever, one of the things I do in my teaching pretty regular is I'll say something like, there are great people who disagree with me on this. You know, there are great people who have a high value of scripture, who love Jesus, but we see this particular issue differently. So we've had a little bit of drama in the last couple of years at our church about women in leadership. And um, there, are, there are great people who love the Bible and love Jesus who disagree with our position on women in leadership. And I'm always really quick to own that because I think one of the temptations for us as Christians sometimes is to go, people who have a different interpretation than me are bad people who don't love the Bible, right? They have a low view of Scripture. They have a low view of God. They're, they're careless with their interpretations. And I, I actually haven't found that to be true. I mean, I'm sure there are people who are careless with their interpretations, but a lot of times the people who disagree with me are people who thought it through really well and have really good arguments for why they hold the position they hold. So I just try and be gracious in that. But there are places where we have to go separate ways, right? There are times where we have to go, hey, this is a, this is a deal breaker for us. And if you don't believe in the deity of Christ, for instance, you don't believe Jesus was God, like you're probably not going to fit very well in our, in our church because that's core to who we are. Like if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead or you don't believe that, you know, th- there are core principles, essential things that we have to agree on. And if we had leadership who came to a place where they disagreed on those core things, I would lovingly and graciously encourage them to go and worship in a place that agreed with their doctrine. But I, I, I have a responsibility and to steward our body alongside the elders. And so, th- like, if somebody was going to teach something that w- we as elders didn't feel like was in alignment with the scripture, 
we, we wouldn't let them continue to do that. But we wouldn't shame them or condemn them or whatever. We would just go, we love that, you, that you're thinking this through, but you're going to have to teach that someplace else. Does that answer your question? Okay, great. Yes. Yeah, good, considering I just stumbled over that thing with pronouns a second ago. Yeah. Um, I, with regard to gender identity in the Bible, I think from the very beginning we see that God creates male and female. So God had some intention in creating male and female. I think there are a lot of really interesting scientific questions about gender identity when it comes to people um, who are struggling with feeling like they are not the gender that they, that they have sexual organs in relationship to. Um, I, I think the data is still really inconclusive on like whether, uh, you know, so I have, different, I have different things that wrestle in my mind. I think maybe some of the gender identity stuff we're seeing in the world has to do with the fact that we live in a broken and a fallen world, right? That we live in a place where there is cancer and where there are hurricanes that wipe out whole coastal cities and we live in a place that needs to be redeemed right and we talked uh, yesterday about the fact that there was wholeness and wellness between God and man and creation but that wholeness is broken I have questions about whether some of the gender identity things we're seeing are an are a byproduct of the brokenness of our world um and I and I don't know I like I, I read as much science I read as much of the data I listen to the you know I'm, I'm paying attention to it but I don't know here's what I do know most of the people that I know who are struggling with gender, gender identities would rather not be struggling with it. So I haven't really met anybody who's struggling with gender identity things because they want to be the center of attention or because they just like drama or because they want to be shunned by their friends or kicked out of their churches or whatever. I haven't met a single person who's struggling with gender identity that isn't genuinely struggling with gender identity. And so then what I recognize is I'm dealing with a person made in the image of God, right? who is made in the image of God, who is created for relationship with God, who is loved by God, that desperately needs somebody just to love them and care about them. So my particular opinion here is, if someone asks me to use different pronouns than the ones that might come to me uh, immediately, I use them. Because I don't, what difference does it make to me what title I'm using? That doesn't hurt me. All that does is give me an opportunity to love somebody. It gives me a chance to care about them. And maybe it opens up the opportunity for me to have a conversation with them about how hard it must be to be them struggling with the gender stuff they're struggling with. Does that make sense? I'm, I am always going to try and walk a path toward building a bridge with another human being who is just as broken as me to try and talk to them about how I think that brokenness is resolved and that brokenness is resolved through Christ and only through Christ, right? So that's not, that's not like a conclusive answer to you, but it is to say that I want my decisions to be to be driven by not just my observation, not just my opinion, not just how a thing feels to me, but I actually want to pay attention to the science on it because I think as Christians, like we, we can pay attention to the universe that God created, but the universe is also busted in some ways. So sometimes we're doing our best guess to try and figure out wh what that is. Um, I can also say that when it comes to people struggling with gender identity, when you tell them that you think the struggle they're having is a result of brokenness in the world, th that hurts them more, right? So that's not, a, that's not a conversation I lead with, right? I don't lead with like, oh, it's so nice to meet you. Are you struggling with gender identity things? I think you're busted, right? Because that's not a way to show somebody love and kindness and affection and grace and generosity. I lead with, hey, you're a human being like me, and you're struggling with something, just like we're all struggling with something. Can we walk the path together and figure out how to find Jesus together on the path? And then maybe down the road, I build a relationship from which I'm able to go, I wonder if the gender identity stuff you're struggling with is a result of the brokenness of our world 
Or is it part of God's design that I don't understand? Like, why is Genesis written the way it is? I have some questions. I'd much rather have that dialogue with somebody in the midst of a loving relationship and some care for fellow human beings than to predispose myself towards somebody. And again, granted, there are lots of people who disagree with me. My approach is always going to be to love people who are on the margins because that was Jesus' approach, right? Jesus' approach was to love the people who nobody else wanted to have dinner with. And right now in our world, some of the people that are wrestling with gender identity stuff are the ones nobody else wants to have dinner with. So that feels like Jesus' crowd to me, right? I get that's complex. Yes? Ooh, no, I don't. Well, I don't know. So here's an interesting, she says, do you think Adam and Eve had belly buttons? Here, we were talking about outside a, a little bit about evolution, right? We had a conversation really quick, and I said, I, I tend to be the kind of person who believes that when God created the trees, he created them fully formed with, a, with an evolutionary backstory. So what I mean by that is, I think on day one, when God created trees, if you chopped down one of those massive trees, I think it would have had 250 rings inside. I think he created a fully formed tree that had an evolutionary backstory. So I don't think the scientists are wrong, but I still think God created everything, which then, if that's what I believe, and it is then I think they probably did have belly buttons, not because they ever needed belly buttons, but because it was part of their, their creative backstory. He created them fully formed. Uh, so he would have created them with a backstory of being, being attached to an umbilical cord, even though they never were attached to an umbilical cord. If my logic works out, when we get to heaven, we'll have to like, be like, hey, can we see your stomachs? <laughs> and they'll be creeped out, and we'll be like, we're not being creepy, we just have to settle a, a kind of a conversation we're having. It's a great question. Yes? Yeah, good, good, good question. I'm still figuring out how to do my job, by the way, so uh, it'll, it might still be a few years before I figure it out. But I, um, I started off in ministry when I was in college. I started off, I was in a Christian band, and, uh, and we signed a record contract, and I got to tour the country for several years and put out six records. I ended up leading worship at Hume Lake. I did that for four summers, and then I came on full-time staff at Hume Lake. I started the Joshua Institute, which some of you have heard about, they talked about this morning. I got to start that, so I was here when that program began. I did that for six years, and then I was the program director at Hume for another three years. During the time I was the program director at Hume, they asked me if I would start teaching at the church. You might not even know this, but Hume has like a little community church, like for the staff. And so I started teaching every Sunday in the community church, and I really loved it. I, teaching for camp is way different than teaching in a local church because for camp you prepare like six messages and you use all your best stories and all, you know, you're like, that, that, it's like you're, you have lots of time to prepare. Like I'm preparing my human messages for months and months, right? When you're teaching in a church or you're teaching every week, you've got, you've got like two weeks to prepare and that's if you're a week ahead, right? So I started doing that and I really loved it. When I left Hume in 2009, I knew I wanted to work in a local church, but I didn't know any of the stuff that pastors need to know. So the only thing I knew how to do was how to teach. I knew how to teach the Bible, but I didn't know how to do elder meetings. I didn't know how to do hospital visits. I didn't know how to do funerals or weddings or any of the like practical shepherding stuff. So I got a job at a church in Long Beach where the pastor there was like, dude, come down here and we'll teach you all the stuff you don't know. So for long time, like nine more years, eight years, I worked in, in Long Beach, basically, and the pastor there would be, he'd call me up at like two in the morning and go like, hey, I just got a call that somebody was in a, an auto crash, and they're going to pass away. We're going to go to the hospital right now. You're going to go with me, and he would take me, and he would just kind of show me the ropes of practical pastoral ministry, because at that point, I'd been, I'd been in ministry for 20 years before I ever worked at a church, you know, 
And so then I was working in Long Beach. I thought I would do that forever. And then in 2016, the search committee at the church where I'm currently serving called and said that somebody had submitted my name for the role I'm in. They said they were evaluating 150 different names. And they were like, do you mind being considered? And I was like, yeah, go ahead, because that's not going anywhere. And uh, God cleared the hurdles, and he warmed our hearts to it, and he called us. I mean, it's very one of the clearest things in my life. Called us to Fullerton, where we're at. And I told them at the time, when I, when I took that job, I did all these Q&As, right? And the people in that church were like, you've never been a senior pastor. What makes you think you can do it? And every time I was like, I don't know if I can do it or not. Like, we're, we're going to see. But I know God's calling me to it. And if God calls you to a thing, he'll, he'll help you figure out how to do it. And I'm in the middle of that right now. So I feel called. I don't feel capable. But, but I'm figuring it out. Does that answer your question? Okay. In the back, right here. Repeated or something, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. Good. So I think, uh, I, and I hit this a little bit yesterday, but I think, I, I, don't, I do not think the Bible is meant to be an instruction manual, right? I do not think that's why it was given to us. I think the Bible was meant to point people to Jesus. And so there, there were Levitical laws and God gave you know, the 10 commandments and then all like reams and reams of paper if you were gonna print it all out of Levitical laws. But those things were all, the, the Bible was given in, in the midst of a culture. So in some ways we could think of the Bible as incarnational in the same way we think about Jesus as incarnational, right? So think about this. Jesus was born, little baby, in first century Palestine, uh, a Jewish boy who grew into a Jewish man. He had Jewish features. But we don't look at that and go like, oh, because Jesus was a Jewish man, like Jewish people are the best people. Or because maybe he had brown hair, people with brown hair are the most godly. Because when we just go like, no, he was just a guy. And there's some insignificant details because of the time period he was born in. He, he probably wore a robe and he probably... Uh, liked fish and whatever, but we don't all have to like fish because he was born in first century Palestine and that's what they ate. We go, no, there's some details here about the incarnation of Christ that are, that are inconsequential. They don't matter. I think the same thing is true when it comes to when and where the scripture was given. The scripture was written, you know, Leviticus, for instance, written by Moses before the people were going to the promised land. That was written in a very specific time in a very specific culture where, you know, most of the things we see in Levitical laws, we actually, like, most of the things in Levitical laws you can actually find in other uh, ancient Eastern societies at the same time, like almost verbatim, word for word. The, the laws that are in Leviticus were very common to the other cultures that were around them. We want that all to feel really special and unique, but it's not really that special and unique. But all of the difference between ours and every other culture at the time is that what Moses was writing and what the Old Testament affirms is that there is one God, Yahweh, right? There's not a multiple gods. There is one God who's trying to draw us to be his people. He wants us to be his family. He, he makes a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So instead of, instead of getting in the weeds on the nitty-gritty, can I wear cotton mixed with you know, polyester? Nah, because it says so in Leviticus. I go, no, this particular passage was, in, it was given in an incarn incarnational way in a time where the people would have read it and they would have been like, yeah, that makes sense because that's what everybody else is doing too. This is just like the way people live, right? But what we're meant to see are not the, not the fine details because it's not an instruction manual. What we're meant to see is the big macro story, which is 
one God, right? One God who loves you and wants to have a relationship with you. And you can try and do all these rules and regulations. You can try and adhere to all these things and you're never going to be able to do it. You're going to be struggling for wholeness, but the only way you're ever going to find wholeness is through a redeemer, Jesus. The whole, all that Old Testament stuff is pointing us to the fact that we can't do it, that Jesus has to do it for us. So for me, I don't adhere to Old Testament law. Um, I don't hold other people to that standard. And I also, I also recognize that there are things in the Old Testament law sometimes that are revelatory of God's character. So the fact that he doesn't want us to murder or the fact that he doesn't want us to be jealous of other people, um, I, I, I don't go like, oh, it's, that's Old Testament, so kill people all you want, right? Not only because Jesus reaffirms it and even takes it deeper, he'll go, man, it's not just about killing people, it's about hating them. So there are things that are revealed about the character of God. I want to pay attention to all of that. I'm not saying there's anything in the Old Testament you can throw away. Jesus says, I didn't come to get rid of this, I came to fulfill it. But I want to look at the Old Testament and learn what it has to teach me as it points me to the fact that I need a redeemer and I can't keep the law. Does that, does that help? Yeah. Yeah, again, I think, I think he gave it to us and he gave it to them specifically in a particular time period where it made all kinds of sense to them. You know, 4,000 years later, there are some things we look at and go, oh, scientific improvements have changed the way we live and we don't have to clean our food the same way and we don't have the same diseases they had and we're not, re you know, we're not, like, because we're in a different culture, I was telling some of the group that was outside, if God inspired, if God breathed the scriptures today, it would include things about how to drive your car and what shows to watch on TV and it would include things about, you know, how much money to spend on insulation or what, like, things that are practical and relevant to our lives. But then if people 4,000 years from now read it, they'd be like, what's a TV and what's a car and who cares, right? Those details are not what's important to us. What's important to us is the overarching story of God redeeming his people. So I think God gave us exactly what we needed at the time, but had he given them, so let's just say, for instance, that Moses had been inspired by the Holy Spirit to write a book that was specifically relevant for us today. So it was all about cars and what internet websites you can visit and you shouldn't because they're not great for you. Well, you know, if it was specifically relevant to 2022, the people that it was originally given to would have been like, this is jibber jabber. We don't know what any of this is. So God gave it at a time that made all kinds of sense to those people and maybe makes less sense to us over time because of the culture in which we live, but we can pull out the macro truth because they're all right there. Does that, does that make sense? So I believe it's God breathed and inspired, but I think it, it's encultured also. Does that make sense? So he, he drops it into a culture in a particular time, and we have to pay attention to that culture be, because we, we, can't, we can't read it the way they would. And there are lots of even translation things that are hard because some of the words they used at the time don't get used anywhere else. And so some of our modern interpreters, are they're making their best guesses on how to translate these words that they can't find in any other uh, contemporary literature at the time, you know? So there's, there's some interesting stuff we gotta, we, gotta, we gotta trust in who God is and what he's doing, so, yeah. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, what the heck? Right. Good. So she asked the question in Hebrews 6 it says it's impossible for someone who's tasted the goodness of God and then turned away to be brought back to repentance, right? 
And that sometimes gets referred to as like the unpardonable sin, right? Or grieving the Holy Spirit. And it starts to kind of freak you out a little. If you're like me, it freaks you out a little because you're like, did I do that? Am I going to, what if I do that? What if I accidentally do it? What if I didn't mean to do it and I did it? And oh, that's it. It's over for me. I'm going to hell, right? Um, here's, here's my interpretation of Hebrews 6. What the author there is pointing to is the fact that if the Holy Spirit has revealed himself to you and you've seen the truth of who Jesus is and you've tasted the goodness of who he is and what he's done, and you understand that he is your redeemer, and you say, no thanks. That God has created a world in which it is possible to say, no thanks. And if you, if you die having said, no thanks to God, that's it. You, you have one opportunity in which to put your faith in Christ, and that's during this life. And if you've tasted and seen the goodness of God, and you've turned away from it, it's, there's nowhere else to go. It's impossible for you to be brought to repentance any other way because Christ is the only route. So I don't think that what it's saying there is that like if you accidentally backslide, you don't go to church for two months, maybe you're going to go to heaven. Like, I don't think that's what it's talking about at all. I think, I think because nothing's impossible with God and because God is gracious and kind, I don't think there's anybody walking around on the planet right now who has put themselves in a position that God would not forgive them if they repented of their sin, right? I think that's open for all of us. And I think we all go through stages of backsliding too. Like we have moments of doubt. We have moments where we don't prioritize the right thing or where we've seen who God is and we turn away. But my hope and my prayers, I think Hebrews 6 is written to say to us, don't stay like that, right? Don't die in that position because if you've rejected Christ, there's nowhere else to find salvation, right? Does that make sense? Help? Okay. Yeah, you bet. Who else? Yes. Right. So they attend church on Saturdays, typically Friday, sundown, Saturday, sundown. And they think that by going to church on Sunday, you're actually paying homage to the Catholic Church, right? Yeah, or, so, yeah. Um, my, I'm just curious, like, what your opinion is. Yeah, so he's asking about Seventh-day Adventists who... who so I want to be careful. I would say there are theological things I disagree with them that go beyond the day they worship. So yes, I disagree with the day they worship. But I would say that's kind of tied to the question the, the young lady had in the back, which is like how strictly do we need to adhere to Old Testament law, right? So Seventh-day Adventists worship on Saturday because the fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. I don't think the specificity of the day of the week is what's really the priority in that particular commandment. And the New Testament church who walked and talked with Jesus, who saw him resurrected, they are the ones who's, who began the practice of worshiping on Sunday. So we're following in a tradition there. Number one, I don't think there's any consequence. I don't, like, I, I don't think that God's like, well, you can't be my kids if you worship on Saturday or if you worship on Sunday. But I do think it sets a precedent to say we, we are liable to uphold these things in order to somehow please God or in order to somehow bring him honor in a way that is negated if we worship on Sunday, which I disagree with. I think it has everything to do with intention. I think there are Seventh-day Adventists who love Jesus and who, and who are followers of Christ and who like, are redeemed and all that stuff, but I do think there are other problematic things in their theology. If you go a little bit deeper, that's not even my greatest concern. I know of churches, I know of churches that are Bible-believing who worship on Saturday because the great majority of the people in their church have kids in soccer and baseball on Sunday mornings and they're like we want our people to worship and Saturday night's the best night for them all to be there and so they worship on Saturday and man the intention behind that is 100% rad and I don't think there's a moment that God's like what I wanted you to do on Sunday or I wanted like 
I don't think God, I mean, that goes back to some of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, it's not really about exactly what you do, it's about why you do it. But in some ways, what's happening with Seventh-day Adventists is the why they're doing it is because they feel it's important to strictly comply to an Old Testament law. And you get in the, you'll go down the drain on some of that, like we were talking about earlier, about fabrics and food and all those kinds of things. You, you, can, get, you can get sucked in really quick if you feel like i got to adhere. Right. So specifically taking the Ten Commandments apart from like the rest of the Mosaic Law, and you know, um, they they would say that it's more important, right? And they right. say like modern day Christians, Protestants, use nine but not ten. That's their yeah. And I, I think that's the same argument that the Jewish leaders used against Jesus when he healed people on the Sabbath, you know. And he's like, this day wasn't made for me, you know. Like I I, I was made for it. So I I totally get the argument, but to me. Again, it just doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like that's a hill to die on. So again, if, if there's a group of Bible believing, like Jesus loving people who are trying to reveal Christ and they want to worship on Saturday, I got no problem. I think the moment that you start to point your finger at other people and say, You've got it wrong and we've got it right, that's where it gets a little tricky. And when you're trying to adhere to a law, like what's the I get obedience and I get Jesus saying, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But then when they ask Jesus what's most important, he says, love God and, and love your neighbor. If you do those two, everything else is squared. So I would also look at that and go, yeah, keep my commandments, love God, love others. Boom. You know, done. Question? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think the intention, again, I'm I don't think we have to, I don't think we have to labor real hard about nailing all of this because we're redeemed by the grace of God. I love, I love the desire in us that, that says there is something beautiful about who God is that's revealed in the keeping of the Sabbath. And so like being aligned with his heart on that is really cool. But I think the key with Sabbath is God saying, um, it is, it is good for you to rest and remember that you aren't the one who takes care of yourself. Like it's not going to be your activity and your work and all of your effort that will redeem you. It's going to be me. And so there are times where you can work hard. And there's times where I want you to intentionally stop. Stop from your striving and your toil. In some ways I would say everything. This is, I don't want to get in the weeds on this. So don't, get, don't, blow your, don't let your minds get blown. But I would almost say that the intention behind the Sabbath relates to every day after the resurrection of Christ for the believers of, of Jesus. Because every day after the resurrection of Christ, I'm called to rest in his work and not my own, right? Now, as far as having a specific day that you're not going to go to your job, I think that's still really vital and viable. But what we're aiming at as Christians is to live a life of Sabbath rest, honestly, like to live a life of Sabbath rest. That doesn't mean we don't do jobs, and it doesn't mean we never mow our lawns. But, but the intention of the original idea was stop trying to do it and let me do it. Right? So, and, and I think that's kind of necessary for us Monday through Sunday, you know? Monday through Sunday. You're welcome. Yes? Yeah, so she, her question is, how do, you, how do you feel about people who are part of other religions and have you ever looked into them? So I'm a guy who... who um, like absolutely believes in reading the opinions and the perspectives of anybody and everybody, if only even to better understand my fellow man, right? To get a better understanding, a robust understanding of the world in which I live. 
I said last night that the reason I'm a Christian, or the, the, the thing that validates for me the worldview of the Bible, is that the, the Bible is the only faith system or worldview that I've ever heard of or seen that recognizes man's inability to save himself. So every other system says, you can do it, you can succeed through achievement, or through holiness, or through uh, depriving yourself of sensual pleasures, or what, like every other system says, you can earn enough karma, or you be re- reincarnated, or whatever, right? They all say you can do it. Christianity is the only one that's like, eh, you can't do it, you need a savior. And I look at the world, and I look at, at my own life, and I go, yeah, that, that lines up with what I see in, in the world, right? So w- as far as how I feel about people in other religions, I love them because they're created in the image of God. They're my neighbors. They're people who are intelligent, who care deeply about things. Some of them are very loving and generous and, and conscientious and whatever. But I do also feel like if Jesus is the only way to be redeemed, that those people need to know Jesus, right? Like that would take a huge weight off of them and all their striving and all their efforts. So my affection for them drives me to want to reveal Christ to them so that they can also be redeemed by Jesus. So my, th- my thoughts about evangelism are driven more by compassion and love for my neighbor than they are a sense of uh, hierarchy or privilege. Like a lot, of, I think there, there have been in the past moments where Christians were like, we got to go and save the world because we have something everybody needs. And in some cases, that was a justification for enslavement and war and violence. I, I don't feel like, man, I got I to gotta go find people who are Muslims and I got to force Jesus on them, you know, or, and if they won't, then I got to hate them. I think the key is like, how am I going to introduce them to Jesus? I'm going to put Jesus on display. I'm going to love and live like Jesus so they go, something's different about that guy. I got, I got friends in our neighborhood in Fullerton who are Muslim, friends who are uh, atheists, you know, and I don't always get to have spiritual conversations with them, but I, I do sometimes. And what I'm trying to do with all of those people is just to put Jesus on display. Like, I'm just trying to live out Jesus so they go like, this guy, this customer in our store, or this client who comes in here, or this guy who brings in his car to the car wash or whatever, something's different about him. Like, we love it when he comes here because he's kind, he's a good tipper, he's like nice to us, he's not judgy, he's trying to learn Spanish, whatever, right? Only for the ability to just be like a, like a decent human being to people who disagree with me so that I can point them to the way I've been transformed. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Yes, over here. How do you connect your knowledge about God with the people that you love about the Christian doctrine? Right. I, I think that's, and I don't want this to feel like a, like a, like a throwaway answer. But honestly, that thing, that like, that personal knowledge of God and growing in a personal knowledge of God is a thing that, that God does. You, you, there's not a button you push. There's not a program you go to. The best thing we can do, and, I, and now I'm talking, I'm not just talking to you, I'm talking to me too. The best, because I feel it, right? I want, I don't want to just read more books. I don't want to just be able to articulate what I think. I don't want to just be able to argue against what other people think, right? I can do that stuff all day long and not know him. My approach to getting to know Jesus more is to ask him to reveal himself to me more. Sometimes, to be honest with you, like in the last two years, the way I'm getting to know Jesus more is through a lot of grief and a lot of heartache and a lot of just like days where I just want to curl up in a fetal position and like cry, right? So I asked him to reveal himself to me, and in some ways he's showing himself to me, but sometimes that's really hard. And, and yet I do feel like I'm growing in my dependence on God 
in my knowledge of him, in my understanding of who he is. Um, and that isn't happening because I'm, I'm necessarily taking tests and studying particular things. A lot of it also happens, one of, the, one of my favorite verses is in uh, Ephesians, the second prayer in Ephesians, where Paul prays for the church at Ephesus that um, together with the saints, they will increasingly apprehend the unknowable love of God in its height and depth and width and length. So I will also say that one of the clearest ways for me that recently that I feel like I'm growing in my knowledge of God in a personal way is by hearing other people's stories about their knowledge of God. So like being in community, it's one of the reasons why the church is so important, but being in community with other Christians and being like, what does Jesus mean to you? Like, tell me the story of what God's doing in your life. And what is, because I, I understand Jesus in my experience and in, in what I've been through and what I've seen and what I've learned. But my experience is different than yours. And so guaranteed, if I spend enough time at a picnic table with you, whoa, my understanding of Jesus is gonna grow just by being with a sister, you know, like somebody else who loves Jesus and wants to grow too. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're going to grow each other's faith by, by intentionally being together and, and reflecting on who he is. Does that help? Okay. Yes. So I started in church and there's so many like stories of Bible. I know so much about it. Like, I just, every time I open the Bible and I'm like, okay, I want to get to know God more and I want to read the word, I just don't know what to do. So where do I go? Like, I know so much about it, but I know it's so little. And it also is a service. Yeah, yeah. So the key for me is service. I think the answer to that, and now I'm just talking about my own experience. I hit a wall, and you know, I mean, I love to read books, and I love to study, and I'm have, I've, I study for a living some of the time, right? I love growing in knowledge, but when I hit that wall and I feel like I'm learning some stuff, but I don't feel like I'm growing as a Christian, I start to serve. I find ways to serve. And whether that's, um, you know, whether that's just mowing my neighbor's grass or being the guy who gets up from the table first to do the dishes, um, whether that is um, looking for opportunities in my community to work with people with disabilities or to care for immigrants or like uh, uh, I did a thing for a long time in Long Beach where me and some of my friends would just take over the laundromat that was kind of up over on the corner on a Thursday night, one Thursday night every month, we'd take over the laundromat and we'd just pay for everybody's laundry for five hours and it was awesome. I met homeless people and single moms and people who'd come here from other countries and were like barely paying their rent and I was just able to pay for like $25 worth of laundry for them. Like we'd save up money and then we'd do laundry. And, and that kind of service puts me in touch with the heart of Jesus in a tactile and practical way. It reminds me of who I am and why I'm created. It reminds me of what's going on in the world around me and how I can be an ambassador in my local context in ways that like the words on a page I sometimes get kind of numb to you know I don't I don't honestly we don't necessarily some of us don't necessarily need to hear another bible story we need to get to a place where we can start putting these things into play and then watch how it works and make adjustments sometimes you'll start reading the stories in a different way because your experience has changed your perspective you'll you'll meet people who are struggling with gender identity or you'll meet people who are struggling with feeling marginalized in our community or they're dealing with racism or whatever and maybe maybe you didn't know people like that before or maybe you didn't you hadn't heard their stories and as you start to hear the stories of your fellow man you read the stories of Jacob and Joseph and you know David and th some of those things you've heard since you were a child they'll come to life in new ways because your understanding is different and that happens through service I think services for me service is the way into other people's lives does that help? Yeah. Okay. Yes.
a good question. Why not just, why not just keep the whole thing under, under tight rein? Is that your question, sort of? Like, why allow that to even exist? Why, why let there be false religions? Is that your question? Good. So I'll try and answer it quick. It's a very good question and a very complex question, but let me try and make it really simple. Um, can I do it with a stupid story? So I have a Furby. You know what a Furby is? It's like a stupid little robot, right? And if you put your finger in its mouth long enough... It goes, oh, mm, yum, me hungry, whatever. And then after a while, you do that for like four weeks, and then there's one day where its eyes will blink, and it'll go, me love you, right? When the Furby does that, I, I promise I'm going to answer your question. When the Furby tells you that it loves you, how do you feel? Nothing. It's meaningless, right? Because there's a microchip in there that's just programmed to do that after you jam your finger in its mouth for a while. But when you have kids, I'm assuming you don't have kids, but when you, when you have kids, and they curl up in your lap, and they, they look into your eyes, and they could say, I have poopy pants, or I want a cookie. They could say a hundred things, but instead they choose to look in you in the eye and say, Mommy, I love you. That'll change your life. There's a difference between a programmed response and a chosen response. God creates the world not with programmed responses. If God had eliminated the potential for false religions, if God had eliminated the potential for us to disobey, if he eliminated the potential for sin and death, if he'd eliminated all of that, then our affection and our worship would be meaningless, right? It would basically just be automatons who do a thing that's pre-programmed, and that wouldn't matter. But when God gives us the ability to follow false religions, or to worship ourselves, or to serve ourselves, or to be prideful, or to murder, or what, he gives us the ability to live the life we want to live. In the moments where you and I turn to him and go, you are worthy, I love you, right? That means that is true glory for God. True glory for God is only achieved through the ability to make a bad choice and not making it. Does that make sense? So we live in a world that has the potential for all kinds of deceit and manipulation. And I, I, I want to be really careful when I talk about other religions because, again, I don't, think the most, I, I don't actually think that most people who are in false religions have bad intentions. I don't think there's like a nefarious, like they're trying to trick people and they're trying to lead. Like I, I think... I think they believe the stuff that, they, that they've grown up in, depending on the culture they live in and whatever. But I also think they, at some fundamental level, most of the people that I've met and built relationships with recognize that it's work all the time. You're always working to strive to try and work your way up the ladder or achieve some new level or just make God happy somehow. And I love that Christianity goes, no, no, God loves you. You don't have to work to earn his favor. He just gives it to you. And so I... I I don't, uh, I don't demonize people in other religions. Like, I don't, I'm not judging them. I'm not, I don't, I don't feel like people, people who are in other religions or people who are atheists who've rejected the idea of God entirely, those people aren't my enemies. But in some ways, I believe those people are the captive of my enemy, you know? Like, like the devil has convinced them to do their own thing, and in that, they're stuck on this hamster wheel of just trying to, like, make life worth something. And Jesus is the one that comes and goes, like, no, I did this for you. Like, it, it has, you have value and, and be my child, you know? So does that answer your question? Sorry I had to do the Furby thing, but that's the clearest way I've ever thought of to articulate the reason behind. That, that by the way, is also my answer to why evil exists. So sometimes people will go, why is there cancer? Why is there war? Why is there famine? I think evil exists because God created a world in which there was the potential for good. And in order for there to be the potential for good, there also had to be the potential for, for evil. Yes? Well, some of the religious trauma that people have, they need professional help for. 
So first answer is you have to be discerning to know whether it's something you can do at all or whether they need to go see a therapist or like a, a pro. Um, some religious trauma can be healed simply by walking peacefully alongside a person of faith and just not being punched in the face anymore. You know what I mean? Like, and you just have to discern that. Some people, all they need, like I have, I, again, I have, I have several friends in my life who don't want to have any, I've invited them to church. They don't, not only do they not want to come to our church, they don't want me to invite them because it just, they just, they've just had too much ugly stuff happen. So what I do with them is I just talk to them about video games and I talk to them about the Dodgers and I talk to them about my kids and I talk to them about, I do talk to them about my job because I, you know, that, that's a part of who I am. But I'm, I'm not trying to heal them, right? They, they're not a project for me. Like, I'm not trying to, like, figure out how to solve their issue. I'm just trying to be Jesus, a revelation of Jesus in the situation I find myself, hands off, and let God do that work. And then when the door opens for me to be able to go, hey, do you want to talk about what you experienced? Or do you want to talk about this? Like, I'm, I'm available to have that convo. Or I could connect you with, like, a professional counselor who could actually help you untangle some of this if you'd be open to it. I had a guy that came to me at church a month ago, and he's young, he's been married for like a year and a half, and his marriage is falling apart because his wife is experiencing that thing, and he's like, I don't even know, I don't even know what to say to her. And I was like, well, how about if we just go out to dinner and we don't say anything to her about that? Like, why don't we just, let's just go out and get some tacos and build a friendship and wait and see if God will sort of unlock that door down the road. One of the keys, I think, for us in helping people who've experienced any kind of trauma is being committed to love them for the long road, right? People can read it. They, you, you can spot it, right? You can tell when people see you as a project for like the next week, and when your problems don't get wrapped up in a week, they bail on you again. Followers of Jesus have to be committed to like be in the trench with hurting people forever, because Jesus is in the trench with us forever, right? So we just, you stay the, stay the course, right? Does that help? Okay, yes, ma'am. All right, by the way, we're gonna wrap up at five, so we got 10 minutes, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I think that is really hard for us to grasp because we look at it and we go, if I was God, I wouldn't do that. In my limited knowledge, in my limited understanding, I think if I was the God of the universe, here's how I would organize it. It would just be cotton candy and we'd be on water slides and there'd be, you know, free movies, all, you know, that being silly. But we think, about, we think about what we'd do if we were God and then we think about what he's actually done and we think, that's not the way I'd do it. The fallacy in our thinking is when we start to think that God is just us on our best day. And the thing, we have to, the thing we have to back up on is to go, God knows more than I do. He knows more about everything, right? He knows more about the inner workings of people's hearts. He knows all the times that he's revealed himself and people have rejected. We talked about that earlier, like people who have seen him and they've held him at arm's length. I don't know all that. I don't know the inner workings of people's hearts. I don't know the things they're, they're dealing with. I don't know... There, I, I don't know, I can't see past just like what's right here in front of me, right? But God sees all of that. He sees the big picture, and he makes choices that are not, not just just, but good. Part of following God is the ability for me, I have to go like, this is not what I would do, this is not the way I To be honest with you, I really wish that God had not incarnate the scriptures 4,000 years ago in, 
Eastern Asia. Like, that's not really, I wish that he just gave us a new version of the Bible in every culture. That would be way, like if I were God, that's what I'd do. I'd be like, here's the 2022 update. It includes uh, guidelines for you on Netflix and how to drive electric cars and what to do when the political system in America seems stupid, right? He would just give us the new guidebook and that'd be so helpful. But what he gave us is this thing that was encultured in, in and then we're trying to figure it out. But think about all the fighting and all the anger and all the frustration because of some of the cultural vagaries and things. I wish he hadn't done that. If I were God, I would do it different. But I'm not, and I'm glad I'm not. Does that make sense? So in my limited knowledge, I feel like I would do things differently than he would, but I have to rest in the fact that he knows more than me and that he's just and that he's good. Go ahead. Good. Yeah, so I would say God reveals himself in a lot of different ways, you know, so, so even, even Romans 1 talks about the fact that, that the creation declares the glory of God, that what can be known about God has been revealed to them most significantly in, in Christ, but some people don't know who Jesus is and they haven't heard that story and whatever, but I also believe that God, just in the nature of the complexities of our physiology, of the nature of the world. I think God reveals himself. And I also think he does it in specific ways. So I've, ta- I've had conversations with people who aren't religious or who don't know anything about the Bible who will go, yeah, I kind of felt like God wanted me to come to this thing. Or I, c- I need to ask you this question because I've been thinking about it for a couple of weeks and I, I don't know how to explain this, but I sort of feel like God wanted me to call your church, right? I don't know. Is that just that they ate some bad cheese and they got a stomach ache or whatever? Maybe. But I also believe that that God does come alongside people at different times and different places, and sometimes they just, they don't want to see it. They don't want to pay attention to it. And I'm not saying that's true of everybody, but I'm saying that I, I, I can't begin to fathom all that God is doing, but what I can fathom is that God has revealed himself as good. When I see, what, what I know about God is revealed in Jesus, and Jesus didn't neglect anybody. He cared about, he even cared about the Pharisees, right? He even cared about the religious jerks. He liked everybody and loved everybody and gave everybody a chance to come and sit at his table. If Jesus is the revelation of what God is like, then God gives everybody the opportunity to come and sit at his table just like Jesus did. And I trust that. I trust in the goodness of God, even though sometimes I look at situations and I think, well, how were they invited to the table? I didn't see it. I didn't hear about it. I wasn't there. But that's exactly the point. I, I don't see it all and I don't hear it all. I know that's a little bit hard. We can talk about that more. Okay, yes, I just have a couple of minutes left, but there's several. Let's do, um, let's just do right here and, oh gosh. Okay, so here's, the, let me just say this. We'll do two more. We'll do right here and we'll do right here and then we're gonna be done. But I'm out every day uh, right after lunch on the sand volleyball deck and I'm happy to do this kind of thing with one of you or five of you or we can, we can circle up on... We, if 10 of you want to come, we can, we can keep going if it's helpful. But that's what I mean when I say I'm available. Like, if you want to push some stuff around. So don't feel like if we didn't get your question today that it's all done. Go ahead. Sorry, orange shirt. For sure. For sure. And remember, God is revealing himself in a way that the culture can understand. So again, when the scriptures are given, they're given in a largely patriarchal society. Um, and everybody understood. Father, you know, mother, like they kind of got it. So, so the way in which God has revealed himself made a ton of sense in the culture in which it came. But yes, I think today, I think there's a lot of people who have crummy relationships with their dads 
And as a byproduct, they have a distorted view of what God is like. Um, and that's, I mean, I'm a good example. There was a long season in my life where I had really whacked out view of what God was like because my dad was crummy. And it, it took someone coming alongside me and being like, God is not like your dad. God is perfectly loving and perfectly holy and doesn't ever make mistakes and never sets anybody aside and doesn't lie or cheat or steal or whatever. Like, that's not, that's not what God's like. But it is, it is a pretty common mistake, I think, or just kind of comes to us naturally to be like, well, if God says he's a father and my, my father is a punk, then God must be a punk. Like, I think we have to work hard to sort of detangle those things. Does that help? Okay. Yes, ma'am. Okay. So how about right here? Yeah. That's a great question. I, I, my understanding of the way Old Testament people are redeemed is in their belief in God and their longing for redemption, right? So that they looked ahead to the fact that they were broken and couldn't save themselves and that God would redeem them. That's, that's how I believe Abraham is saved, you know? And even though he had a relationship with God, I think it's in his longing for redemption, looking ahead to Jesus. So yes, I think in the Old Testament, even people that might not have been uh, Hebrew people or people who, you know, I, I have no idea how God interacted with other cultures, but I do know there are examples of, um, there are examples of people in close proximity to Abraham or in close proximity to Moses who, who would go, hey, we want to know more about your God, you know, or times where God would say like, hey, we're going to go in and we're going to punish these people, but we're not going to do it yet because their unrighteousness hasn't earned that yet. So that's going to happen down the road because those, those people aren't deserving of that yet. So God's justice and his goodness is at play even in the stories that lie off of the page of the Bible. Does that make sense? God is, God's still working. We just have, we have one story, but God's moving in the, in the people of the earth at the time, you know? Yeah. That's what the New Testament says. So the New Testament tells us that the people in the Old Testament were redeemed by their longing for a redeemer who they didn't know but they anticipated. I think when we talk about people who were outside of Israel, we're speculating a little. You know, like we're making our best guess and part of our best guess on that has to do with the grace of God and the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God that he would give all of those people an opportunity to look forward to redeemer as well. I don't I can't think of a text where the Bible explicitly talks about people that are that are not in the central story of Israel but knowing the character of God knowing that Jesus invites everybody to the table I look at it and go I'm I'm anxious to see how God solved that issue and in his justice and goodness you know Okay all right we're out of time I hope this was helpful thanks for hanging I'm around all week and I live in California I'm available anytime whatever holler but thanks for the time. Remember that if anything I said to you today made you frustrated, I'm happy to follow up with you. I also want you just to remember that I shared with you my perceptions and opinions, and I am a human being, and some of my opinions and perceptions aren't right. So there you go, okay? Thanks, everybody. See you later.